Gresham College presents Migration, a Historical Perspective by Professor Sir Richard Evans. I'm Richard Evans, I'm the Provost of Gresham College and I'm delighted to see you all here tonight. Uh, I thought I would talk about a, a matter of current concern in a very broad historical context, focusing particularly on, on Europe but also looking at some other areas as well. Uh, not that broad, not over the whole of, the, uh, of history, as it were, but uh, particularly in, in the 19th and 20th centuries. So we can actually put the problem which of immigration, which concerns so many people in this country, into some kind of perspective. And in particular, maybe that's a function of history uh, to realise that it's not all, all that new. Now, of course, at the moment, we're in, and have been for uh, the last few years, in a major crisis caused by the influx of millions of migrants, refugees and asylum seekers, mainly from the Middle East, but also from parts of North Africa, into Europe. The numbers have reached large proportions in the last few years. People are being driven to leave their homes by civil conflict, above all in Syria, where an estimated quarter of a million people have died since the beginning of the war between the Assad regime and the various forces first uh, of democratic renewal, then of Islamist extremism, uh, which have uh, opposed it. Uh, the uh, similar conditions have existed in Iraq and Libya, pushing more people out in Afghanistan, uh, parts of North Africa. Political violence, economic deprivation have fueled the mass movement of people to Europe. You've got some idea of the latest figures I could get here. Uh, the, the, the key thing is to look really at the, uh, at the bottom, which shows you the, uh, the, those, those graphs there of the massive increase in numbers uh, in, from 2013, really, since the civil conflicts began. And that's where they've been going to, Greece, uh, Italy, Spain. Uh, they've been coming from, uh, and, and Turkey, of course, but that's not Europe, so that's not on this, this table. Uh, they've been coming above all from Syria because, of course, of the massive war there, from Afghanistan for similar reasons of instability and civil conflict, uh, Iraq and then uh, Eritrea, Pakistan, Nigeria, Somalia, Sudan, all of these areas beset by, uh, by conflict, violence, and ensuing deprivation and hunger. Huge numbers are coming by sea, as you saw there in that table, often under difficult and dangerous conditions, and a large number have died on the journey. Many others, hundreds of thousands, have suffered major hardship, including malnutrition, disease, violence, and rape. In overcrowded boats coming particularly from North Africa, uh, as you can see there, very, very dangerous. European countries have begun to close their borders and the European Union's plan to distribute refugees by quota across member states has been resisted by some. A scheme to limit the number of refugees by returning them to camps in Turkey has met with some success. Refugees have begun to return to Syria as ISIS is slowly driven back. It's worth pointing out, I think, that this migration crisis is not just European, though I will be talking mostly about Europe. Nor is the problem just a recent one. 
<clears throat> since World War II, and especially since the 1980s, wars and conflicts have led to large numbers of refugees, high figures reflecting not least headlong population growth in the third world. So you can see there the massive growth uh, from the 1980s, some fluctuations, major events there before that, uh, 19, uh, the uh, Second World War, uh, I'll come on to talk about that, uh, India and so on. Up to the recent and continuing refugee crisis, Pakistan was a major destination for refugees in the global context, mostly fleeing from conflict in Afghanistan. The mass migration of people fleeing from economic disaster, famine, conflict, violence in their own countries uh, is not merely uh, a European problem. And of course, the, the collapse of the state collapse of uh, it, the ending of the state's guarantee to uh, give its people a, a life, uh, often because of civil wars and civil conflicts, is linked very closely to famine and to deprivation and then to migration. But I'm going to concentrate, as I said, on Europe and try and put this crisis into historical perspective. Let's remind ourselves, to begin with, that large-scale migration's not new in the modern history of, of Europe. But it's going, it's migration in the other direction. So not into Europe, but out of Europe. This is the greatest international migration in history in terms of numbers. It occurred in the 19th century as millions of Europeans made their way to other parts of the globe. A small number of them after the failure of the 1848 revolutions and the 1863 Polish uprising against Russia for political reasons, but most of them just to seek a better life and better economic prospects uh, overseas. So the original economic migrants are going out of Europe, to particularly to North and South America, and also to Australia, New Zealand, and so on. They're not coming into Europe. Uh, this is... Uh, these are the major, it's a bit fuzzy, I'm afraid, but those, those are the major sources of uh, immigration. Let's say people leaving Europe in these two periods, uh, 1871, the 1870s and 80s, and then the 1890s and 1900s. <clears throat> it's the lure of American freedom, the chance of acquiring land cheaply and farming it, first of all, for subsistence, and then for profit, irresistible for many whose future in Europe seemed without perspective. And the extension of the British Empire in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the achievement of independence by Latin American countries in the 1820s also pulled Europeans overseas. The most spectacular exodus was from Ireland uh, between 1848 and 1855, very short period of time, the island's population fell from 8.5 to 6 million. Much of the decline at the beginning of the period, of course, was because of the terrible famine caused by potato blight uh, and more generally re repeated failures of harvest in the hungry 40s, as they were called, and by the indifference and prejudice of the British authorities. But the continuing fall to under 5 million 
by the census of 1921. It's almost entirely due to emigration. As this cartoon shows, carried out very much against the wish of the British. There's the British lion looking really sad at losing all these Irish people. Uh, of course, the Americans uh, portrayed a very uh, favorable picture of life uh, in, uh, in the USA. Uh, and John Bull fails really to, to keep uh, Catherine de Hulian and all the, all the Irish uh, in the British Isles. Remember that time, Ireland was part of the, the United Kingdom. The bulk of the migrants went to the USA, more than 3 million in all between 1848 and 1921. By 1900, there's more Irish-born men and women living in the USA than in Ireland itself. But if this is the most famous example of migration through starvation and famine to a better life overseas, it's not the only one. I'm going to do a brief kind of tour d'horizon of, of other migrations in 19th century Europe. Uh, for example, between 1846 and 1857, so just over a decade, over a million people left Germany in the wake of the potato crisis. The USA also became more attractive after 1862 with the passage through Congress of the Homeland Act, which allowed settlers to fence off land for farming in the Midwest at little or no cost. News of this soon reached Europe Another million people left Germany between 1864 and 73. As the world economy recovered from the crisis of the late 70s, a fresh wave emigrated. Another 1.8 million left Germany by 1890, this time mostly from the impoverished northeast. In fact, numerically speaking, the Germans were the largest single group of immigrants into the USA in this period. And the largest single group of, uh, of uh, people now in the USA uh, are not of British descent, they're actually of German descent. And it's rather similar in, in Scandinavia. Uh, Norwegian emigration, in fact, was higher as a proportion of the domestic population in the 19th century than that of Britain and Ireland. 971 per 100,000 Norwegians left in the 1880s compared to 608 at the height of the Irish emigration in the 60s. Austria-Hungary is very similar. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, over a million people uh, left the Hasidic Empire from 1900 to 1914. There you've got the different countries, the rather sort of cliche-ridden uh, images of the people. Uh, Great Britain, the cloth cap, making clear it's, uh, it's working-class emigration. Uh, the Irish... Uh, the Italians, looking a bit like a bandit there. Uh, and Germany is the tallest one in a kind of traditional Bavarian sort of, sort of dress. But there's plenty more. Uh, and, of course, some of these, um, it, the, the rate depends on the size of the population. So Norway had a s small population, um, but a lot of purport, large proportion left. And there's Russian emigration, which began with the Jews fleeing pogroms initiated after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881, though Jews are in no way responsible for it, uh, showed a, this is a mixture of political and economic motives. Um, more than 10,000 people, mostly Jewish, left every year, with a total of nearly 800,000 in the 1880s, uh, 1.6 million in each of the following decades. And then the last wave of European immigration, because emigration to the Americas 
came in uh, from southern Italy, uh, where uh, there's in enormous poverty uh, even after the turn of the turn of the century, uh, and uh, uh, trapped in a, in this, a cycle of back backwardness. Uh, huge numbers. 873,000 Italians emigrated in 1913, about uh, 1.8 uh, percentage of the population of Italy left between 1900 and 1913. Uh, the classic origins, if you remember the, the, the movie The Godfather, of course, that The Godfather 2, I think, shows the uh, immigration of uh, Marlon, the character played by Marlon Brando, and his, his, his father in the, 18, in the early 1900s. Worth remembering that with fast steamships uh, guaranteeing a quick passage, as long as you didn't travel on the Titanic, about 40% of these came back between 1897 and 1906. About one and a half million Italians, however, emigrated permanently in the first decade of the century. Almost no part of Europe is exempt. Uh, nearly a sixth of the entire population of Greece uh, emigrated between 1890 and 1914, uh, uh, about 60 million people altogether uh, left Europe between 1815 and 1914. Roughly 34 million to the USA, 4 million to Canada, a million to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, between 1857 and 1940s, the only figure I could get, 7 million Europeans left for Argentina. And between 1821 and 1945, 5 million for Brazil. So this is an enormous uh, enormous scale of migration. Now, the effects of this mass migration on other parts of the world could be devastating. The boost it gave to economies like those of the USA and Australia, and this was a tremendous boost, but it was at the expense of the indigenous populations. Here's an 1872 famous painting by John Gast called American Progress. Now, there you have... Uh, this is the idea of manifest destiny. They have Columbia, symbolic figure representing America, carrying, I think, the Constitution. <coughs> it's accompanied by hardy pioneers at the bottom, the right there, uh, and stagecoaches uh, while she's pulling telegraph wires, laying them across the Midwest, and is followed at a distance by, by railways, that great symbol of 19th century civilization, all of them heading towards the Rockies in the top left of the picture. But you'll notice the bottom left-hand corner, half-naked Native Americans are being pushed into the outer darkness along with the bison on which they depended. And their population plummeted as Europeans streamed across the plains, fenced them in, began farming and drove the... Uh, drove the uh, Native Americans uh, out, of the, out of the Midwest. It's a very rough, crude uh, estimate of the decline of the Native American population in North America from 5 million down to just a few hundred thousand between, uh, between the arrival of the Europeans and the turn of the century. Europeans introduced diseases above all, mostly accidentally, in a few cases deliberately, like smallpox, uh, to which Native Americans, or Australians for that matter, had not been exposed, and to which they had no immunity. Even the common cold uh, was, was fatal to previously 
um, un, un, unexposed um, native populations. And, of course, populations were driven off their open land as it was fenced in into increasingly poor and unsustainable reservations, driven off partly by uh, troops and by, uh, by armies and by, of course, legislation introduced to deprive them of their, of their land. Uh, here's a, a map of sessions of, uh, of, of populations as Indian, Native American populations uh, over the period. You see vast areas are, are forcibly, forcibly taken away from the Native Americans. And then, of course, uh, the establishment of new European colonial empires from the famous scramble for Africa in the 1880s to the First World War added state-sponsored genocide to the factors reducing native populations. Most notably in German Southwest Africa, now Namibia, and the Belgian Congo. Superior weaponry, greater numbers, led to the defeat of native states, though in some areas, notably New Zealand, where the Maori were well organised and supplied, and the state of Ashanti in West Africa, which took a long series of, of wars to subdue uh, native populations, if they were well organised and had an effective state and uh, and sophisticated military tactics, they were able to resist uh, with some success. The situation changed after the end of World War I. Growing restrictions on immigration into America, the rise of nativism, anti-immigrant sentiment, produced a drastic reduction in the numbers of Europeans leaving for other parts of the world. This didn't mean an end to migration, but it meant very broadly a change in its nature. From this point onwards, for almost a century, most migration within Europe was forced. It wasn't voluntary. And it was overwhelmingly caused by what came in the 1990s to be known as ethnic cleansing. So I want to turn now in the second part of this lecture to look at the history of what's been called ethnic cleansing, a very uh, unpleasant phrase. Uh, it means the forcible removal of populations within Europe against their will. And it began in Europe with the Balkan Wars, which raged from 1911 through to the First World War, as the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Muslim Ottoman Empire, collapsed. Smaller states like Serbia, Greece, Montenegro, Bulgaria, uh, fought to increase their territories. So uh, this led to mass expulsions. 100,000 Turks were expelled by an alliance of Balkan states before 1914. Uh, they're the unfortunate Turks trudging back to, uh, to Turkey. 130,000 Bulgarians were expelled from Macedonia to Bulgaria. 100,000 Greeks from Bulgaria to Greece. 49,000 ethnic Turks were exchanged for 47,000 ethnic Bulgarians in a population transfer agreed between, between governments. It didn't mean, mean to say at all that it was not violent. It certainly was. And this then became a bigger issue after the war. The uh, victorious powers, Western powers, decided to reward Greece for backing them at the expense of the Ottoman Empire, which had been on the side of Germany. Young Turk nationalists had taken over the empire and organised armed resistance. As the conflict flared, each side began to expel members of the other group, defined particularly by uh, religious characters, uh, uh, adherents, Christian or Muslim. Sorry, this is 
in French, again, it's the only one I could find. Uh, you can see, just look at all the arrows, all of these mass, uh, mass um, uh, enforced uh, migrations or exchanges between uh, particularly the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire, Turkey on the right-hand side there, sort of orange, uh, Bulgaria and, and Greece. About one and a half million Greeks are forced out of Turkey, often with a lot of violence. The precedent for this <coughs> already existed in the forcible expulsion of Christian Armenians from Anatolia during the war. Violence uh, exercised by the Ottoman Empire and the Young Turks in particular escalated until it became the genocide of over a million Armenians. But on the other hand, half a million Muslims were expelled by force from Greece during the post-war turmoil. Two governments ratified these expulsions retrospectively in 1923, and a further population exchange was agreed involving 200,000 Greeks and 360,000 Turks. It's a lot of... Uh, uh, this is an ominous precedent, and there's a lot of um, migration uh, then following on that uh, of a... Uh, not, again, not of a voluntary type, but though it was not... Uh, it was not enforced, certainly not by international agreements between the wars. Uh, Left-wing, uh, liberal, uh, socialist, communist... Uh, people and Jews left Germany and Austria. Uh, again, communist socialists left Spain uh, after the or during and after the civil war. Uh, Italy again. Uh, there was some political migration uh, from from there. But uh, it was on a seen in this larger context. It was on a relatively small scale. Uh, what uh, caused migration? mostly forced to grow massively again, was World War II. Let's look at, first of all, at Yugoslavia, the composite state uh, made up of, of, of um, Slovenia, Serbia, uh, Croatia, uh, Montenegro, and, and, and other parts of the Balkans. Uh, the um, Germans conquered Croatia and these areas, and... Uh, declared a Croat client state under the fascist uh, Anton uh, Pavlic, uh, took over Bosnia, Herzegovina, and all the territories inhabited by Croats. So here's the enormous uh, size of the German puppet state of Croatia during the war. And Pavlic began a campaign of, of ethnic cleansing of these areas. He drove out two million Serbs who were in the new state. Uh, he, is, he defined Croats as Aryan, as the Nazi Germans like to say, and then deprived all non-Aryans of their rights. There's mass murder committed by the fascist Croat Ustasha uh, militias against Serbs on an enormous scale. And uh, perhaps 300,000, maybe 400,000 Serbs were murdered. If you want uh, the... Uh, uh, reason for the bitterness in the Balkan Wars of the 1990s, you have to no look no further than these conflicts in World War II. About 180,000 Serbs fled Croatia to, uh, to uh, Serbia. Uh, meanwhile, uh, about 30,000 Jews were killed by the Croats, most of the gypsies, often under very horrendous circumstances. And Hitler's ally, Hungary, expelled Serbs as well, Bulgaria uh, to 
61,000 Bulgarians are forcibly exchanged for 100,000 Romanians. There's a lot, of, a lot of expulsions going on. But much bigger in scale was the plan that the Nazis had for the reordering of German uh, and European populations during the war. Who now remembers the Armenians, Hitler said to remark to his generals as he ordered them to exterminate not the Jews, but the Poles and their culture at the beginning, just before the beginning of the war. This violence against uh, what the Nazis called Slavic populations grew uh, in scale until the general plan for the East, which is official Nazi policy from 1942, proposed the extermination by disease and starvation deliberately caused of between 30 million and 45 million Slavs to make way for the German settlers after the war had been won. This would have been, had it been carried out, the largest genocide by some way in, uh, in European, indeed in world history. Uh, there, the brown area you can see is the, uh, represents the ambition for the German-dominated area of Europe, stretching way up there on the top right into Eastern Europe. And from all of this area, the idea was that uh, Germans would be dominant. Uh, it derived from a deep Darwinian conviction that all wars were racial wars, and that Germany and the Germans were destined to rule Europe and the world. But these weren't the, this is fortunately never realised. It were the, the uh, uh, some three and a third million Russian Soviet prisoners of war from the Red Army were deliberately killed by the Nazis, who just, and the German uh, army indeed, who just penned them into huge enclosures on the steppe and left them to die of starvation and disease. Uh, that's in a way the beginning of this. There were many hundreds of thousands of others were, were killed by the Germans, but it never actually got as far as implementing the plan uh, in anything like its uh, full extent. It's not the only uh, population transfer, uh, extermination, brutal forced migration during the war. If we turn to Stalin, Stalin uh, and the Soviet Union imposed a social revolution in the style of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 and the following years in areas that his forces invaded by forcibly removing counter-revolutionary social groups, as he thought them, this Polish landowning class. One and a half million Poles were deported from the, the eastern part of Poland, uh, occupied the Red, by the Red Army in uh, 19, uh, 1939. Uh, some 350,000 died, including thousands of Polish officers, perhaps 14,000 shot in the woods at Katyn. 200,000 people were deported from the Baltic Republics when they were occupied in 1939, about 10% of the population, many sent to labour camps. 400,000 Romanians were deported by Stalin from Moldova. Uh, the idea is not, this is not kind of a genocide, the idea is not to exterminate the Poles or Latvians or Romanians, but um, to remove anyone who Stalin thought <clears throat> might be an obstacle to the imposition of Stalinist or communist rule. And from 1941 onwards, while the Germans invaded uh, the Soviet Union, Stalin deported groups he thought posed a possible threat to Soviet security by allying themselves 
to the invading Germans. There's ethnic Germans, obviously, especially from the Volga, Crimean Tatars, Bulgarians, Armenians. About two million people, an unknown number, died in the harsh conditions of deportation. Finns, Poles, Germans, even uh, 172,000 Koreans were deported from the Soviet Far East to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. That's before the war. Uh, during the war, a million ethnic Germans were deported from the Volga uh, and, and 300,000 Poles, many more. So <clears throat> ethnic cleansing is not quite the, the, the term for this, um, uh, but uh, certainly uh, some of the areas were settled by other ethnic groups. It's more a kind of social engineering and military precaution uh, of one should say a very exaggerated uh, kind. Under Stalin's eventual successor, Khrushchev, these deportations were mostly reversed. Survivors were allowed back home. Khrushchev denounced the deportations as inhumane. But that's not the end of it. There's also a massive uh, deportation that went on in East Central Europe uh, at the end of the war and for some time afterwards. The end of the Second World War, about 11 million people, all of them ethnic Germans, were forcibly expelled from Eastern Europe, or if they'd already fled, were stopped from coming back. German settlements were scattered all over East Central Europe. <clears throat> They'd been strengthened, of course, by Nazi colonization, but many of these families had lived in the region for centuries, and now they're ex expelled by the re-established nations, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Yugoslavia, other countries. Long lines of them trudged towards Germany, with the weak succumbing to hypothermia and malnutrition. And these expulsions weren't mass acts of revenge carried out by peoples of Eastern Europe who'd suffered under the Nazis, though that played a part in it. Actually, they were ordered by the Allies, by Britain and the USA. And they were planned long before the war came to an end. During the Second World War, the Czechoslovak leader in exile, Eduard Benesch, convinced the Western Allies that the continued presence of a large German minority in Czechoslovakia would saddle the state with a million or more what he called young, incorrigible Nazis who'd be destabilised the state. National minorities are always, and in Central Europe especially, he said, a real thorn in the side of individual nations. This is especially true if they are German minorities. And by mid-1942, the British government had formally accepted the principle of the transfer of German-speaking minorities out of Eastern Europe. It was thought that their existence there had been a major factor in destabilizing the region as they were suborned by Hitler before uh, the war, and to prevent this from happening again should simply be kicked out. And it also became clear before the end of the war that Stalin would hang on to the territory in eastern Poland he annexed in 1939 under the terms of the Nazi-Soviet pact. As the Germans invaded from the West, the Soviet Union were invaded from the East. He's going to hang on to this. There's no alternative uh, to compensating the post-war Polish state with new territories further to the West in Silesia and up to the rivers Oder and Nysa that in fact had been part of Prussia and later Germany for decades or even centuries. So Poland, as it were, moves westward. Uh, so um, parts of, you can see that long sort of yellow bit there, is land annexed from Germany by international agreement uh, to give uh, more territory to Poland to compensate for the 
charity it lost to the Soviet Union in the East. Red Army was in occupation. Stalin held the trump cards. He expelled 1.8 million ethnic Poles from Eastern Poland, uh, and they're annexed by the Soviet Union. Their arrival in the west of the country uh, prompted the Polish expulsion of ethnic Germans, whose homes these people, these expelled Poles, occupied. Half a million ethnic Ukrainians were sent to the Soviet Union from Poland, and more were expelled, more policy exchanges. Uh, all the Allies could do was to call for population transfers to be conducted in what they called an orderly and humane manner, but in fact they were not at all. Nobody's sure how many ethnic Germans died in these expulsions. They may have been a million, they may have been half a million. It's certainly very un 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 uncertain. So uh, great uh, was the economic boom, the so-called economic miracle in West Germany in the 1950s that these uh, 11 million or so expellees and refugees were absorbed into the West German population with astonishing speed. <clears throat> now, during the Cold War, the division of Europe into two armed camps, ethnic conflicts were largely suppressed, particularly by the authoritarian Darian regime of Marshal Tito and the multi-ethnic state of Yugoslavia, which had been founded at the end of the First World War. But in 1989-90, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of its suzerainty over Eastern Europe, removed the threat, the threat of Soviet invasion uh, that had kept the Yugoslav nationalities together under Tito's rule, which was distinctly different from the Soviet rule and uh, somewhat more liberal in its economic and other policies. So Slovenia declared independence in 1990, so did Croatia, then Macedonia. At this point, the Serbian uh, and Yugoslav leader, <coughs> Slobodan Milosevic, abandoned the idea of trying to keep Yugoslavia going and opted instead for the creation of a new large Serbian state. Serbian nationalism was based from the beginning on uh, a historical concept of greater Serbia. Croatia's independence was seen in Belgrade as a challenge. <clears throat> With the announcement of Croatian independence, the Yugoslav National Army, the Serbian army basically, invaded or began to bombard areas of Croatia inhabited mainly by Serbs. The historic city of Dubrovnik on the uh, Dalmatian coast was shelled and the border town of Vukovar was destroyed. Serbian forces took control over central Croatia. So that map of the big Croatia during the Second World War was now being replaced by a very different map of the big Serbia. The war came to an end, broken by international agreement, ultimately because uh, both sides uh, saw a greater prize at stake, uh, which was Bosnia-Herzegovina, which also declared independence in 1991. There's no clear boundaries in this area between different ethnic groups, in particular in Bosnia-Herzegovina. You can see it's a fantastic jumble of Serbs, Croats, Muslims. Now, Muslims, because uh, this had been under the Ottoman Empire for many centuries and there had been a lot of conversions of particular social groups. Um, uh, so you can't draw a line between this is where Serbs end and Croats begin. Ethnic divisions here, of course, are reinforced or overlaid by religious divisions. Uh, you've got Catholic Croats, Orthodox Serbs, and the Muslims. 
From 1992 to 95, extreme nationalist Serbian forces led by Radko Mladic carried out a deliberate program of what was now officially called ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, trying to drive out the Muslim population. Serbia forcibly expelled over a million Bosnian Muslims and Croats. Uh, 90% of the atrocities in the war were perpetrated by Serb forces, uh, but Croatian forces joined in in the areas Croatia claimed, uh, again, against um, Muslims and Serbs. In 1993 to 4, Croatia expelled tens of thousands of Bosnian Muslims for the region it claimed. The most notorious atrocity was the massacre in 1995 by Serb forces of 8,000 Bosnian men in the town of Srebrenica. But there's many, many other uh, examples and the site of Bosnian Muslim prisoners in the Serb-run Omaska camp aroused worldwide condemnation, this famous or notorious uh, um, secretly taken photograph. Well, the conflict ended in 1995. The NATO bombing of Belgrade brought the Serbs to, a, uh, to, to the negotiating ta table. And uh, the Croats took the opportunity to win back the territory they'd lost in 1991-2, expelling 200,000 Serbs. Altogether, 140,000 people died in the conflict, which flared up again in <coughs> the end of the decade in, uh, in, in Kosovo, claimed by Serbia for largely historical reasons, but inhabited mostly by Albanian speakers. The uh, Serbs began uh, in the 1990s, early 90s, a campaign to eradicate Albanian and Kosovan identity. An irregular resistance movement was formed by the Kosovo Albanians, uh, reaching a height in 1998 when a Serb massacre of 60 Kosovar Albanians, including women and children, attracted international condemnation. In 38,000 missions, NATO planes aimed uh, to drive the Serbs from Kosovo and pressure Serbia into a withdrawal, again by bombing Belgrade. Uh, the result, immediately, was a massive campaign of forced migration in which Serb forces drove up to a million Kosovar Albanians from the province. Refugees claimed torture and murder by the Serb forces, but the campaign failed as the NATO forced Milosevic to come to terms in 1999. Kosovo was placed under UN control in 2008, declared independent, still not recognised today by many countries. Most of the refugees returned, <clears throat> but now the Kosovar rebellions began their own campaign of ethnic cleansing, which reached the heights in 2004. Altogether, a quarter of a million Serbs were driven from Kosovo in the years after the war. So the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, taken over a decade of violence to achieve, involving forced population transfers on quite a scale and ending not much more than a decade ago. So this marked, I think, then the end of the era of ethnic cleansing uh, and forced migration that had begun in Europe uh, nearly a century before. And this moves on now to the, 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 the third and last part of my, my lecture, this, this change between, from ethnic cleansing, so-called forced migration, expulsion, massacre, genocide, to a different kind of, of migration. 
That is to say, voluntary migration. Now, in fact, voluntary migration has been happening on a large scale for many decades, since the 19th century, in fact. Industrialization brought large numbers of people from the countryside into the towns, not just in, 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 within individual states, but also across borders. I remember the 19th century, there were no passports, uh, hardly any border controls. If you take Germany as an example, between 1850 and 1900, the population of the eastern provinces of Prussia fell by one and a half million, partly because of emigration to the United States, partly because people were leaving for the towns. It's a poor agricultural region. The German occupational census of 1907 showed there were half a million foreign workers in Germany already before the First World War, from Austria-Hungary, Poland, and Russian Poland, and Italy. Special circumstances, I think, dictated this increase in foreign workers during the Second World War because the Nazis refused to force women into the factories, believing that they were a source of a, 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 a high birth rate that should be helped to have more children for the Reich rather than to making, uh, uh, making munitions uh, and, uh, and, and helping of the war effort in a direct way. There's also massive losses, uh, possibly up to 5 million men killed at the battlefront. So 7 million foreign laborers, mostly forced laborers, were imported into Germany. Uh, that uh, was then, they were then dissipated, they became displaced persons at the end of the war and mostly went back to their countries of origin, which of course included Italy, uh, France, Belgium, Holland, uh, as well as Eastern Europe. Well, now then, uh, I mentioned the economic miracle in post-war Germany as the worldwide recovery of the economy as international economic agreements fostered a boom in production, uh, the so-called economic miracle. And before very long, uh, Germany, West Germany, the larger part of Germany, and the capitalist uh, or non-socialist Germany, uh, was... Um, uh, experiencing a serious labour shortage, which I already mentioned was there even before the First World War. This brought in a lot of guest workers, so-called, Gastarbeiter, <coughs> particularly from Turkey, became the largest number in the 19... above all in the 1960s. Uh, and um, when I first went to Germany myself in the 1970s, I remember seeing large groups of mostly Turkish and sometimes Italian uh, and Spanish or Greek uh, workers uh, hanging around in the, evening, in, in the evenings in the railway station waiting for uh, their friends to come by train. Their numbers declined following the oil crisis of 1973, but not massively. It's, uh, uh, it, and it says sharply there, but it's not as sharp as, uh, as some other figures. So... It's a, it's a relatively small decline and not that great in the Turkey. In fact, in the end, Turkey, uh, Berlin is the second largest Turkish city in the world in terms of population uh, after Istanbul, uh, just as, incidentally, Greece. Uh, um, uh, I think it's Melbourne in Australia is the second largest Greek city in terms of population. Um, Germany has a low birth rate, an ageing population, a structural shortage of labour that's, that began in the late 19th century, and it continues today to need foreign workers to keep the economy going. A major reason, apart from the political ones, why it's been so welcoming to refugees. And then, of course, at the same period, the booming European economy in the 1950s and 60s brought 
in, uh, citizens of the former empires back into the metropolis looking for a better life, looking for work. Uh, France, example, from North Africa, uh, the UK, of course, from the Indian subcontinent, uh, and from the West Indies in the post-war boom. And that, again, uh, came to an end in the 70s with the economic downfall, at least began to decline. Uh, and then in 2008, of course, there is a sharp downturn in net migration. It's the balance, net migration is the balance between people immigrating to a country and people emigrating from it in the countries most affected. So there we go. It's a kind of massive downturn with the economic uh, uh, crisis of, uh, of, uh, of 2008, the credit crunch, the crash, whatever you want to call it. Um, <clears throat> Germany, the numbers grow uh, because it still has a labor shortage. It's not as badly affected as other countries are by the economic crash. And of course, it brings in substantial numbers of refugees from the, the Middle East in particular. The downturns particularly sharp in Spain and Italy because those are two countries which are uh, affected by the, uh, by the, much more affected by the downturn, the economic downturn than, than others in Europe. Germany bucked the trend. So uh, immigrants are coming here to Germany still uh, from uh, in 2009, 10 and 11, particularly from Greece and Spain. As those countries' economies decline, uh, then the numbers of those going to Germany where they can be employed and earn money with a continually flourishing economy uh, grows very sharply. Major changes in the pattern of migration within Europe, also driven, of course, by the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism, the east of extension of the European Union in the, after the turn of the century. So the free movement of labour within the EU has drawn substantial numbers of Poles into the UK, reversing the previous pattern of net migration. So you can see there, up to almost up to the turn of the century, late, the late 90s, there's a rough balance between uh, migration, uh, emigration and immigration. But after that, then the net migration starts to rise. Immigration then moves well above uh, emigration. It's partly, it, it, that's why uh, I, I think if, insofar as immigration is the key issue in Brexit, this change in the nature, the pattern of migration, this increase in net migration from the turn of the century onwards starts to fuel uh, Eurosceptic populism. Uh, and it remains a much bigger political issue than immigration from the Middle East. Partly because until the accession of Eastern European states to the EU and Tony Blair's decision not to use the EU's rules to limit their numbers, there are fewer immigrants from EU states than from non-EU countries. So there you can see the gap is closing again uh, in, uh, the mo in the last four or five years. Uh, like three or four, uh, I can only get this up to 2014, I'm afraid, but you can see there's more of a balance there. Immigration from the rest of the EU uh, is, uh, is growing uh, and uh, it's uh, re almost reaching the levels of non-EU immigration. People know in the end also that refugees from areas torn by civil strife, like Syria, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, they'll eventually want to go home once political stability has been restored. It's worth noting that a high proportion of people who feature in the immigration statistics, in addition, are not really immigrants at all. 
They are students. They are people who come to our world-leading universities to study. And something that opinion surveys have shown, that the great majority of British people actually welcome. Rightly or wrongly, many British people regard immigration from other European countries as a permanent problem unconnected to short-term crisis or study. If people are informed about the real scale of migration, their hostility towards immigration uh, decreases. But it's still the case that this hostility is much greater in the EU uh, than in other European countries, uh, fueled particularly by the rise of what you might call English nationalism, perhaps in response to its equivalent in Scotland. And this, is, this nationalism has fueled the movement for Brexit. It's not true that immigrants take people's British people's jobs or that they come, uh, come uh, to the UK to live off benefits. So many people who supported Brexit seem to think that both are true. But it is true that concentrations, let's say, of Polish migrant labourers in parts of East Anglia and other parts of the country have led to a feeling of cultural alienation among the British in inhabitants of these areas. So overall, the proportion of immigrants in British society is quite low, and uh, the, uh, oh, I got the right one there. Um, so there you see formal study is the blue line. You see in some years, people coming to study at universities uh, have exceeded uh, the numbers who are come to work. Uh, those are the two main groups. And it's uh, right, I think, that almost every member of the cabinet, apart from Theresa May, would like to see students taken out of the immigration statistics. And certainly universities would, absolutely, because they're a major source of income for universities. Uh, and of course, once they go back to their own countries, they will have close links with Britain and they will tend to use British machinery, British, uh, British know-how and so on. They're, they're, that's their primary relation. So it's sort of economic, economically beneficial. Now, that's a percentage of immigrant foreign-born population, 2015. 13.4% in the UK, lower than in Sweden, uh, lower than in France, uh, roughly comparable to Spain, sorry, lower than in Germany, roughly comparable to Spain and France, um, uh, somewhat lower than Ireland. Uh, you see the movement there, again, there's a great difference between... Uh, 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 Southeastern Europe and, uh, and, and Western Europe, but it's 13.4% foreign born. The increase in recent years, uh, oh yes, yeah, uh, has not been very dramatic. Um, you here you've got Brits living in other European countries, so either EU countries, so you have to remember it goes both ways. This is why this has become such a thorny uh, issue in the Brexit negotiations, because uh, as against uh, immigrants from other countries, uh, other EU countries, living in the UK. And by the way, the largest group of people who are born in other countries living here are Indian, uh, not from other EU countries. Um, uh, you've got a million uh, Brits living in, uh, in Spain and substantial numbers in, uh, in France and in, and in Germany. So it's a two-way two -way process, not to mention Ireland, of course. So it's a two-way process there. Seems to me that Brexit, in the end, is not mainly a response to immigration. Many of the highest votes for Brexit were in areas where there were very few immigrants. The reasons of the vote are a lot more complicated. A major part of it is just a protest against the country's governing elites by people who, in many cases, rightly felt they'd been neglected by governments of both political parties 
and hadn't seen any rise in their living standards for a very long time. Tony Blair took them for granted and went for the middle class vote. And then, uh, conversely, the coalition governments and the, the, the conservative governments uh, have thought that they couldn't win their support, so haven't bothered either. There'll always be people, now coming to a close, there'll always be people looking for work and prosperity in countries other than the ones where they were born. This applies, as this shows, to the British as well as to others, uh, though statistics don't often feature in, in the debate. Uh, and a lot of the people in Spain are, of course, retired people, uh, not all of them living on the Costa del Crime, uh, but a lot of them there quite legitimately. Over the last 200 years, migration has been sometimes economic, as with most European immigrants in the 19th century, sometimes political, as with a smaller number of them, uh, sometimes deliberately created by war, <coughs> as in the 20th century, sometimes the, conflict, the, 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 the outcome of conflict uh, and civil strife and civil war, which uh, is fueling, I think, the refugee crisis of the present century. So solving the crisis in the Middle East, it's very easy to say this, but solving the crisis would be uh, almost immediately end the refugee problem from the Middle East. But the longer-term problem of regulating labour migration, people migrating for economic reasons, I think is still with us. And here, I think we need to decide what do we want. Clearly, given the uh, dependence of British institutions like the NHS on qualified doctors, and not to mention nurses and so on, from other parts of the world. Uh, it's uh, um, nobody with any sense wants to put up barriers that will stop them from coming. And the 96% drop in the numbers of nurses coming to the UK from other EU countries since the Brexit vote is worrying, to say the least. Blanket across-the-board promises of numerical reductions in immigration, say to the tens of thousands, are not only unattainable, but they can also be deeply damaging. And surely some form of discrimination is needed. The history of migration, then, to bring this to an end, is an intrinsic part of the history of humanity. Actually, it's how we all got here. Uh, in the, these are the students, again, from uh, other countries. Um, non-EU, uh, the EU are the green ones. So you can see the numbers have been falling uh, in recent years. Uh, numbers from China have been increasing very substantially. Uh, at my own college in Cambridge, now the Chinese students are the largest single group. Well, that's world migration over the whole of history. Uh, you, can, you can see that's what, it, that's what was going on uh, a long time ago in prehistory. Uh, uh, they all came from Africa, of course, but off they went over into North and South America, into, uh, into Asia, into many other parts of the world. That's our history. That's how we got here. Migration can be damaging, as the history of European migration in the 19th century showed in some respects, but it can also bring benefits. And the task for the future surely lies in managing it so it enriches our society to the benefit of all, including the migrants themselves. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.